Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a Toronto DIY god, formerly of the Bare Naked Ladies, now of his own incredible solo career, Stephen Page is on the show. That's right. This is going to be a bit of a mind blower for you. But first... If you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnatapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, except this one we actually have to give credit to, Chris Murphy, for being a non-believer in the power of punk for booking this episode. But Tristan will get the message to me. And thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work that you do on this show. You can also find Tristan on Instagram at turnedoutapunk. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by heading over to turnedoutapunk.com and buying a t-shirt. Thank you to everyone that does do that. Also, tell all your friends about this thing. Here we're coming up to episode 400. It's a good time to jump on if you're not already on board the Turned Out of Punk train. Speaking of being on a train... Fucked Up is on the train to concerts, I guess, right now. That you could probably tell from my voice being a little bit shredded. Fucked Up is on tour. If you want to find out more information about the Fucked Up tour, go to fuckedup.cc. We also have a bunch of records being reissued by a lot of incredible record labels. Get Better Records. Tank Crimes record is putting out, Records is putting out a new record. Uh, there's also stuff on Matador Records that's out now. You can find all that and more over at fuckedup.cc or on those respective label websites. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, Stephen Page, former member of the Bare Naked Ladies, and as I said off the top, DIY God in Toronto, because the Bare Naked Ladies, you know, a lot of people just know the Bare Naked Ladies from the hits, you know, especially in the United States and, and over in the UK, but the reality is, uh, you know, growing up in Toronto, you saw the Bare Naked Ladies on the come up. Like, we watched them go from local band to international superstars, and and they fought their way to do it. He talks about it in this show. And so a couple months ago, I hit up uh, Chris Murphy and I asked him, is Stephen Page in a punk? And he said, I don't think so. But I think that's because Chris has got a very particular definition of punk. So I, I took the bait and I hit up Stephen Page and he said, absolutely. And as you will tell from this episode, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I not trust Chris on this one. Uh, if you want to find out more information about Stephen Page and what he's been up to, including Every Saturday, he does a live-from-home show. You can go to stephenpage.com for more information about, you know, upcoming tour dates with his band, and they're going to be going on tour. Kind of, you know, there's a lot of tour dates coming up. So go over to stephenpage.com and check that out right now. Uh, and, and this is it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I'm so excited for you to hear this one. This is a fantastic one. I, I used to meet Stephen. He used to come into Treasure Island Toys on the Danforth when I used to work there, and we talked and... You'll hear me talk about it more now, and here we are all these years later. Little did I know back then what I know now, or we would have had a lot. I would have punished him way worse. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Stephen Page on Turned Out a Punk. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, as I was telling you uh, prior to and 
to do in this interview. Uh, I We met and had a conversation, a few conversations over the years, actually, at Treasure Island Toys on the Danforth. And I, I feel like this is a continuation of one of these conversations all these years later. Perfect. I like that. <laughs> but I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Well, yeah, I guess as a, as a kid, um, I was aware of it come from a kind of a safety pins and Mohawk kind of thing. But, um, you know, I would have been seven in the summer of UK punk rock. And so it was, it was certainly in the, um, public consciousness but i here's the thing i remember when i was about i want to say 10 i was in um the record stop in cedar bray mall in scarborough okay and there was a record there in the bin like in the cutout bin that was uh, a compilation that it was i think was either a 99 cents or a dollar 99 and i just liked the cover i knew none of the acts on it i'd never heard of anybody on it but it looked cool it was called Business Unusual, put out on Cherry Red Records. Absolutely, a fantastic compilation. Amazing. And so that, like, opened my mind up right away. You know, so that would have been probably 80 or 81. And I, th at that point, I was like, oh. I mean, even then, I would think I was aware of the fact that in in that world of punk, the idea of punk was like 1977, and then it was over. And, and so I thought, I was, oh, I missed it. I missed it. Um, you know, when I was in high school then, there'd be like, kids with a leather jacket that said like crass or something on it and i think well, well that's no they missed it because i was 77. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I missed new wave even i was too young for that i was you know i was too young for everything as far as i i could see i just always felt like i missed everything um and then like later in high school i became obsessed with the jam and i loved them because they had this element of feel like looking and sounding like they had missed out on something they were just mm. a little bit too young for the sixties to have, so they're kind of reliving that a few years later. So that was always kind of in my mind, the sense of like just being too young for something, but that, that compilation, um, you know, the stuff that really spoke to me was the stuff that like, like Cabaret Voltaire, Throbbing Gristle, um, Thomas Lear, that kind of early electronic stuff. And then like later I got it, you know, really into human league and that kind of stuff. But, uh, that idea of that really lo-fi electronic, stuff that grew out of punk was really exciting to me absolutely well i think that's the thing about that compilation that to me is really reflective of kind of my favorite thing about punk which eventually you know gets beaten down as they try and market it and try and fit into these various boxes but like the idea that when you listen to that compilation none of those bands like it's all like it's like the whole spectrum of of independent music is kind of on display well maybe not completely but like there's just so much diversity in terms of sounds and people are doing on that thing it's like uh yeah, like especially Cherry Red Records, they would wind up putting out so many different kind of bands that are all kind of spring out of this sort of idea that anyone can do it and kids should be able to make music. Right. And even now when they're doing re-releases and so on in Cherry Red, it's still interesting and sometimes difficult music. And I think yeah. that's really cool. That stuff like that that seems so simple at the time. Like that was the way it was almost marketed. Anybody can do it. But it still has this, there's a challenge to it, to, to the listener that I think is, is still exciting about it. That it's not just in, because its simplicity doesn't make it uh, instantly palatable. You know, there's other simple music, bubblegum stuff that is palatable to everybody and understandable right away. But punk, I always felt like had, there was an element of a social and sonic barrier that you had to cross. And that without it, it's not about being elitist, 
but in a way it kind of is when you're a kid you need that sense of belonging that sense of like whether it's the cool kids or the opposite the uncool kids and i think as i became a musician later the idea of what's punk you know some people would would protect what punk is that it's you know it's the certain type of guitar rock that is with a with a, a certain type of uh, um, social group and all that kind of stuff but to me it was always about uh, a lack of commerciality and a, a sense of like yeah this idea of doing it yourself and like for me music that was always about prowess had no value to me like it didn't it never interested me you know I was in a band for a long time with guys who were like great players and part of me like would turn my nose up at that like I, I could I'd be like I can barely play guitar I know like three chords and I can't even play them well and for me that was like a protective thing and meanwhile they're like have you heard Jaco Pistorius <laughs> I can drum like Neil Peart and I'd be like I'd be like oh god it's just I, I it took me a long time to accept music beyond um beyond kind of what I decided was cool because everything before I discovered punk and new wave and so on was always was the Beatles and mm -hmm. I didn't think of them as having prowess. I didn't think about them as having anything. They were just the sound. They were like this lump of music. I never picked it apart until much later. Do you think that's like a factor of like, because your brother and your dad both played, right? Like, is that growing up in a household with people that are, you know, pursuing it as a craft? Is, do you think that's some sort of like early rebellion almost? In a way, but you know, my dad was really cool about it. Cause like we, he would make my brother and I take piano lessons and he would say to the piano teacher, they're going to take lessons and they may not ever practice because I'm not going to make them. So <laughs> you've got to be okay with this or don't take them on as students. And we would never practice. Um, what, what my dad would do is he would make me as a teenager, like I'd sit at the piano and we'd have sheet music. So whether it was like standards or like we'd go and like buy songs that were popular on the radio. So like Lionel Richie song or something like that. And I'd sit there at the piano and like try and pick out the songs like and do a terrible job of it really slow but he'd sit behind the drum kit and he'd just hold down the time waiting for me to get the next chord <laughs> like I always think like that's the thing that like that got me into being like prepared me for being in a band I was never in a cover band you know apparently like apart from like one time having kids over to my parents house and we played the Batman theme over and over again <laughs> or like tried to do Bella Lugosi's Dead or something, and you know that's about it. I, I gotta hear that recording. That's something I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, it was like that kind. It was well, yeah. One kid knew how to do the the cross stick bossa nova beat or whatever from the, the clave thing, and then the, you know I I just turned the reverb up on my little Ibanez amp, and there you go. You were you were and, and sing to the amp, of course, too, as well as the guitar at the same time. So yeah, that's kind of also that would give you a love of it, you know, like you're not being drilled into that would drive you away. You're like your dad must know from being around musicians and being in bands that like you got to have a love of this thing that's more right. than like a, a, a being driven towards it. Totally. That was always my dad's thing was just like was about loving music. You know, he he uh, he helped to run the Mariposa Folk Festival when I was a little kid. Like so, he had this kind of. He wasn't a folky, but he got into it because a friend of his ran the festival and moved to Australia, and my dad kind of took the job over, and you know just saw. I mean, he what he liked was jazz, blues, rock and roll, and you know he started to see kind of the where all these different genres met at Mariposa. You could have 
you know, Sonny Terry and Brown and McGee and James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and Pete Seeger all kind of in the same place or Taj Mahal or whatever else. And it could, this real kind of mix. And I think that was always kind of drilled into our heads that like genres weren't really important. It's funny you bring up the jam too, because there's a lot of people like from Billy Bragg to the guys from Cox Bar that were on, and they both talk about how early punk, like the clash and the pistols and the damned rang is inauthentic to them. And it wasn't until they heard the jam that they were like, Oh, this is real people music. And it, it really feels like they're, they're kind of like one of the first bands that, you know, even though they did have a lot of edifice with the suits and everything, they're also breaking down the edifice and they're just like normal dudes. Like they're not dressing up in weird clothes that you couldn't wear in normal work type thing. And they were truly working class as opposed to pretending to be or somewhere in between, which people were suspicious of when it came to the, to the clash, for example, some people were. I mean, yeah, other, yeah. other, other people were like, this changed my life. And I followed them around the UK for three years. And that's the thing. But for, you know, I think for the jam, because they were there at the same time, it seems like to us, I think afterwards, like they were kind of phase two. Um, but, you know, they're making, they're just kids making music. Yeah. Dressing up in suits and kind of trying to be mods in a way, but really musically they are completely, yeah, completely authentic off the top. Um, and you know, he mentioned Billy Bragg. Like for me, that was a that was a big entry into me wanting to do this for a job. Like seeing him, seeing him open for the Smiths the first time, and then seeing him at the concert hall after that was like this guy who. I mean, it's obviously it comes from punk. You know, that's that's where it came from. Um, but he was a guy who could come and make this much noise as one person or one person plus Wiggy or whatever. And um, and that to me was always mind-blowing. Bands like uh, well, him or bands like the Violent Femmes that you could have three guys largely acoustic making the noise of a big rock band was really exciting to me. And they had this punk energy and a connection with their audience, whether it was through their lyrics or through their live concerts. So there were there were certainly elements of the of punk were the things that made me decide yeah I want to be in a band. I, I love really I could do it. Sorry, I I love I love that kind of like softer punk stuff like Patrick Fitzgerald like all these people that were doing like piano or just acoustic guitar like you mentioned the Violent Femmes like to me that's definitely a punk band like the the way they approached this thing it gave like the vocals and like you're saying the lyrics like so much more presence have you, have you ever heard that uh desperate bicycles band no -uh. they were like one of the first diy bands they got beaten by the by buzzcocks by six months but they were like so amazing because every lyric you can hear crystal clear and it's basically like a call to action like here's what you're supposed to do if you're arrested here's how to put out a record like it's really kind of instructional i love that that's great and well that's also what i got when i when my brother and i got into you guys as, as young kids like barenaked ladies it was it was that kind of like I knew exactly what you were saying. You know, I could hear everything about it. And it wasn't, it was like the lyrics were important, you know, and it's, I guess that's where it comes from. Billy Bragg first in some ways. Sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the music that I listened to as a teenager, the lyrics were really accessible. And I know, you know, people are, some people are, are not lyric people, like lyrics just kind of come. And I'm, I'll go back to the Beatles with that real quick. It's just that that's one band where I never paid attention to the lyrics. And I, I didn't realize it till recently. Like it was such a big part of my life. And I just, I don't even care if they're singing words. Um, and I don't judge whether they're terrible lyrics or good ones. Everybody else, I'm a harsh critic. <laughs> you know, like 
does that affect me emotionally or does that sentence make sense or is you know is the syntax of that right they use a word wrong like whatever i'm a snob about that uh and i i hate that i am but so that for me as a teenager that was a big big part of of what i listened to so whether it was like getting into dylan or getting into um you know the smiths or something like very lyric focused artists um it was yeah the lyrics had to be clear and precise and and like understandable um they could have um they could have concepts you didn't understand or or um uh, metaphor you couldn't understand or whatever else but but uh as far as diction goes and the way they're mixed yeah it was a big thing yeah absolutely where'd you kind of i guess you're going to concerts your whole life i was going to ask what your first concert was but you're probably growing up going to music yeah, like my parents would take us to stuff, whether whether it was like folk festival or Harry Chapin or whatever jazz shows. But I remember the first the first big rock concert I think I went to was nineteen. I want to say it was eighty one or eighty two. Maple Leaf Gardens, um, Queen with Billy Squire. Oh wow, what a double bill! That was pretty good. But we were supposed to not like Billy Squire. He was already on the less cool range. I mean, now I think it's awesome. But, you know, it was just people were so cruel about music then, too. Like about um, if, you know, because he, you know, he was kind of dancing around and people saw that as effeminate. Well, he was probably just doing a Robert Plant impersonation in a lot of ways. Um, you weren't supposed to like it. And it was, you know, a prime disco sucks era. And one thing that stuck with me about that show, it was really weird. And even then, I was probably I was probably twelve, and I remember feeling deeply uncomfortable. Was they took a break in the middle of the, of the set? Um, there was one that when Queen had the album Hot Space, which had body language on it, it was kind of a dancey record, and uh, <laughs> Brian May they took he took a break and uh, Freddie took a break and Brian May steps up to the mic to sing a song and he says, "Well, Freddie's gone black on us," and I was like, "Oh God." Wow. I don't think these guys are my people. <laughs> no. That's yeah. And I think it's also what you bring up there, it's it's kind of like what you brought up earlier. This is armor for people and they're yeah. using it to defend themselves against their own insecurities and and I think also it you know brings up a point that Toronto was very towny back then. Like anything you read about it, like it wasn't Toronto got very cosmopolitan throughout the eighties, but back then it was like it seems very, you know, growing up and, and just reading, especially about the era, it seems like still kind of small towny. Yeah, I think it really was. And I mean, it was always known for being kind of this, this uptight Presbyterian kind of town where you couldn't, you know, you couldn't buy bread on Sunday till noon or whatever it was. Like it was just all these weird Sunday shopping laws that were all about church. And so like, I never understood it. You could go buy fruit, but you couldn't buy Like they'd hang a sheet in front of the bread. <laughs> Like stuff until noon on the Sunday, um, just crazy stuff like that. And there was a sense of like it being very. I mean, it was. We grew up in that Wayne's World kind of Scarborough, and we tried to make fun of it. I think the same way that Mike Myers did. Um, you know, I look back on it now, and I feel like, well, maybe we didn't try hard enough to make fun of it because we were kind of like celebrating it in a way. And, I, and honestly, the Scarborough of today is so much more awesome um than it was i mean i think that's the thing is we knew it wasn't awesome and you know we knew it was kind of like it was bland and we were trying to find something interesting and exciting about it um and i think with music for me like finding whether it was like 
CKLN and CIUT, or it was CFNY listening before that through the 80s, and and through music was a way to find um, identity. Like uh, records, I remember being in uh, South Pacific um, clothing store on I was on Maitland, and I remember hearing Johnny Cash's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. And I was, of course, I knew who Johnny Cash was, but it wasn't until I was in that store buying some army pants that I realized, like, oh, this is punk. Like, to me, it was like, all of a sudden, I connected it and went, oh, that's the birthday party, or Violent Femmes, or whatever else, you know, the, the gun club. Like, I understood where it came from, and all of a sudden, it was okay for me to listen to that, or Leonard Cohen's first album, or whatever else. They ended up not seeming like they were old fogey music, but that were just as vital as what I was already listening to. Well, I think that's also the thing about punk is the return to authenticity that you kind of see happening. Like, you know, and like the Ramones are even doing it where they're like, no, we're not, we just don't like this bloated proggy thing that it's turned into. We want to go back to rock and roll when it was just like kids music. And that's, yeah, like that's where I guess Johnny Cash and Leonard Cohen, and and that's why I guess Violent Femmes ring so true to all these punk people, even though sonically it doesn't fit in. It's the it's it's real. Yeah. Although <laughs> I was thinking about the rock and roll thing. I'm sure you said we were talking when we were messaging before about postcard records, and um, I was thinking about that documentary about. Did you see that the uh, Big Gold Dream documentary about postcard records? That's a hole in my knowledge. I did not know about this thing till now. It's on Amazon Prime, if you have it. I, I unfortunately well, do, so I will. <laughs> it's called Big Gold Dream, and it's, uh, it's about um, uh, fast product and postcard records. And they, they talk about, uh, I, I can't remember which, which label it is, one of those two gets the opportunity to sign the cramps, and they listen to it and they go, ugh, it's rock and roll. And they don't bother signing <laughs> for them. Like the idea of, of it being rock and roll was just repulsive. That's yeah. Well, there's a, that, that's the thing about that. You know, I guess that's where the split kind of happens when it starts going more post-punk yeah. and the idea of like, no, let's make something new. And that's where I guess you get all that sort of like kind of futurist looking stuff that you were talking about earlier, like, you know, Cabaret Voltaire and, and Throbbing Gristle and this idea of like, yeah, we know what it was now. Let's let's do something else with it. And that's when it gets really interesting too, is when everyone's kind of taking this energy and running in every direction with it. Right. Yeah, and I, because I was unaware, especially as a kid when like we didn't have internet access and you could only pick pick up p- bits and pieces of who was what, what band, which band is from where, what scene are they part of, how do they relate? So like, you know, where does Gang of Four relate to Joseph K. Like, to me, they're kind of the same thing. But if I was, like, growing up in 1981, I might have thought they were polar opposites. For yeah, different absolutely. Reasons. You know, that kind of – so being able to kind of figure that out on your own was kind of a fun journey. But it also meant that your tastes become really eclectic. So what was – actually, I was going to ask you, did you ever see Paul Myers bands back then? Um sure. Well, I, Space Invaders years is before my time, but like when he was when it was the Paul Myers band before Gravelberries, we it was one of our early full band gigs was opening for them at Sneaky D's. What about Disband? I think it was called. Like he had a. I know about them, but I don't. I don't know them. Oh, that's so. Well, it's so funny. Like, you know, you mentioned this sort of like suburban wasteland that Scarborough was back then in in you know like 
your description of it. And it's amazing how much great stuff kind of comes out of that boredom and how many interesting bands and people are kind of like, you know, slaughtered, like the birth, some of the birth of like death metals coming out of Scarborough. Sure. Yeah. And then you also had L'Etranger out of there as well. Absolutely. And, you know, and uh, so the edge was just a little bit before my time. I remember like when I started trying to get into clubs, would have been, I would have been about 17 trying to, you know, and they'd card you all the time and you just try to take, take your chances. Like, I just never bothered with fake ID or anything. It was just like, can I see your ID? And I give them my driver's license. It says I was 1600 or whatever. And they're like, it says you're 16. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and they'd say, come in or not. But it'd be bands like Shadowy Men or the Dundrells or, uh, you know, those uh, kind of like, there was uh, the remnants of uh, like a Paisley Underground kind of thing. And, uh, and kind of garage, it's called garage rock. Of, and then there was the beginning of that Toronto roots thing that was early Blue Rodeo and Cowboy Junkies and stuff. It was kind of when I was starting to go to see shows. It's kind of like Handsome Ned kind of yes, era. Absolutely, yeah. And Chris Houston was like post Forgotten Rebels, but uh, or, um, but what Chris Houston's stuff, I was a big fan of that as a kid as well. That, that solo record is incredible that he did. Yeah, with, with AstroTurf one. Yeah. It's great. Well, that's a, that's the unfortunate thing about Canada compared to to the UK. Like, we didn't really have like there was post punk music, obviously, but it's not like the there was like an industry response on the mainstream level to support this sort of right. stuff. Oh God, no! I mean, really, until until the very late '80s or early '90s, labels in Canada were almost exclusively looking for copycat acts the Canadian version of whatever, um, you know, so there was no, no one was looking for something that was the Canadian version of <laughs> wire. You know, they were just looking for the Canadian version of the police. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a bare naked ladies change that, right? Like there, I got the ubiquitous tape. We all there have this, right? Like, it's like, it, it's the, it's the first certified gold independent release. And that's, you know, kind of paves the way for like the Dynalones of this era. And like these labels that are been able to kind of like, gain a foothold in the industry like you're saying like it there was no support for these bands so you kind of had to legitimately do it yourself well nobody wanted us i mean we were a novelty band and uh and they they saw that as like well first of all the business was too slow moving so if there was any momentum you could have by the time you had a record out it would be over and that's kind of how they they looked at it and i think you know most of the labels in canada were branch offices who often had to pass stuff by head office in the US if they wanted to get a release in the US as well. And I think they're just embarrassed. I think we embarrassed people. And I, we kind of loved that. We kind of the, the more we could see that the that people thought we were lame and embarrassing, the more we would go for it because we knew people liked us. It didn't matter if it was cool people or not. And eventually when that happened, that only happened because it was a we we had <laughs> we had a tape that we had made on um a four track in my parents' basement um, that we were using as a demo, like just to send to try and get gigs and uh, occasionally like college radio or something. But we had taken it to a place to duplicate it and they duplicated it so that it was it played back at the wrong speed, played, played back a little bit fast. So we thought, oh, this just sounds bad. We should probably, we were going to go down to um, South by Southwest. We said, we should probably do a better demo. Um, and the deal with Southwest Southwest, for example, was the way you would go to play down there is um, you'd have to kind of get past the Canadian business, like Canadian music business 
mafia, whatever they were, and they'd say, sure, you could be part of our showcase or not. or not." And, of course, to us, they said, uh, no, um, you can't, can't be part of our showcase. So we went, okay, well, we'll see you there. And we just got in a van. We So we did this recording one night at Wellesley Studios because it was cheaper, of course, to go from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. We used one reel of tape, did these songs. We had, like, whatever, a minute 30 left at the end, which is why we did that lame version of Fight the Power at the end. We did it until the reel ran out. Um, and it was just supposed to be a demo to hand out to people at Southwest Southwest. Um, so we went down to Southwest Southwest with the – double bass strapped to the roof of a rental minivan and uh, um, just played everywhere we could on the street, like on sixth and, and in front, in front of the Canadian uh, showcase and wherever else we could and just handed out tapes. And uh, eventually I think it was 13 engines couldn't get across the border. They had the wrong, like, not that we had, we had no visas, but we were there and uh, they had the wrong visas and couldn't get across. So somebody comes running out and says, 13 engines can't make it. Can you do, can you do the showcase? And we're like, yep. Okay. We'll be there. And we ended up like playing two sets that night as part of their showcase or whatever. And then kept playing on the street. And, uh, we just started doing the same thing. Went to new music seminar in, in New York and did, the, you know, handed out the tape. So we had tons of these tapes and started selling them off the stage. And Sam, the record man calls and says, we're having people asking for your tape. We had no intention of making it a, a you know, available retail. Didn't know how to do it. And eventually, um, we started selling so much, we couldn't afford to do the duplication anymore. And my dad said, well, how about if I pay for the, for the duplication, I'll take a little cut, but I'll pay for the duplication and I'll, I'll get it out to all the, all the um, record stores. Because by that point, I was calling ahead to every record store to, you know, okay, we're playing in Halifax. So I'm calling the record stores in Halifax two weeks before we play to see if they can take 10 copies of the tape. And <laughs> became, you know, whatever it was, 85,000 copies later. Yeah, because, well, and it's the birth of page distribution. What were, what was page publications one and two? Because this is tape is number three. Is that the first demo that you guys did? Yeah, we did. So we did two. There was Buck Naked, which was just me and Ed. And that one changed because we we just duplicated on like our dual deck um cassette thing and we just oh we got like, oh we got one more song let's add it to it <laughs> so there'd be like another version that has you know an extra two songs and um sometimes there'd be like hand writing on it and sometimes there wouldn't wouldn't and then uh, then we did one we called the pink tape it was called bare naked lunch uh but people call it the pink tape it was just like clip art pictures of uh of the instruments and it had like some songs that ended up on gordon as well that's the one that was that was at the wrong speed and then there was the, the yellow tape. It's funny you bring up that method of going down to South by because that's like, that's what we did. That's what I think every band that actually winds up making an impact in Canadian music has to do. Like, it's almost like you have to do it in spite of the music industry here in, in, rather than with it. And you kind of need, so what you need is the music industry here to see that you can do it without them. Uh, that, that, you know, you're running the risk of, they're, they're running the mis risk of missing out on you. And this happened to us multiple times over the course of our career. Like with that first thing, they all said no. And then eventually when we started selling larger venues and stuff, they started coming forward and then Seymour Stein came and offered us a deal with Sire and, uh, um, you know, Warners who had had no interest in us at all in Canada, all of a sudden were our label and their people were, we ended up having a good relationship with them, but we were 
a U.S. act to them. We weren't part of their domestic roster, um, which was kind of a weird thing for them. And then, uh, you know, it took it took a little while for the business to kind of catch up. Um, and I remember, like, when we did uh, the first Juno Awards we did, see, I think this is the most punk rock thing we ever did was people were, I could, all, other bands were grumbling because, you know, we were whatever. We were for kids or something, and we were a novelty group, and it wasn't real and whatever. I don't know what their problems were, but, um, you know, people were like, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of, just like a comedy act. You can't nominate that stuff. So we did, of course, they looked, they wanted us to, the, the producers wanted us to do Enid, which was kind of the big single at that time off the record. And they wanted to, we're going to do it like in a 50s diner. It's going to be the set. And we're like, no, no, we're going to do box set, which is about music industry and, uh, you know, exploitation of artists and, and a kind of crass commercialism. We're going to do it dressed in full clown outfits. And which was my, like our way of, of giving, of just going, fuck you. You want clowns? And uh, here's clowns and like total pratfalls. It's like, it's, I love it. I still think it's one of the greatest things we did. Um, it didn't endear us to a lot of people. We got a couple of awards that night, but it was like, you know, I think it took a while for people to warm up to us. And then after our third record came out and kind of didn't do so great, like it kind of, we actually had to cancel shows on our tour. We were doing better in the U.S., but under the radar. Um, I think people in Canada had kind of written us off. The business had, at least. And uh, so when the big album, Stunt, came out with One Week on it and stuff, no one in Canada was prepared. They were totally playing catch-up. We were playing much smaller venues in Canada than, than we were in the U.S. And, um, it took them another album cycle before they kind of embraced us again. I think I remember there was that one show you guys did an outdoor show in Boston around then. And it uh -huh. was like set the outdoor attendance record for Boston. Yeah. And it was just, I could only imagine what it was like to be a Canadian music executive at that point being like shit, but, <laughs> but that you guys did. That's the, that was the thing growing up watching your success happen. Like I, I wasn't alive to see it happen to like, you know, the first wave of punk bands, but like to watch you guys in like kind of the unbelievable heights you achieve through doing it yourself. Like it was like a band that was on speaker's corner. And then like, then you're playing like another bigger venue and then another bigger venue. And it was just like, this can be done. And years later with, with fucked up, like I, I, it's an inspiration to me still like, cause it was, Totally, like all the even the punk bands I all like, they needed major labels. Like, Ronergy had a distribution deal with A and M. Like, there was this was completely DIY. Yeah, at the at the beginning it was. I remember having a conversation with Chris Murphy, like sometime during that time of like the first couple albums, where he he just said, "Imagine if you didn't sign with a major label, you'd be Richie Rich by now." And I was like. Yeah, you're right. But nobody nobody else, of course, except for Murphy, is going to say that to me. But he's like, you know, part, just puts that little seed of doubt in there where I was thinking, yeah, we've done it right. And he's kind of like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have sold out so quick. <laughs> but, it, you know, but it's funny because, like, I, I remember um, Arcade Fire, you know, like they obviously, you know, achieved amazing heights with Merge. And then they signed for the first time fully to the major label. And it was a big deal, you know. And then all of a sudden they had a special on after Saturday Night Live. And it's like, oh, that's that glass ceiling you need the major label to break through. Because there's there's relationships that they have that you don't have access to on an independent level because those people aren't in these back rooms making this kind of stuff happen. 
Right. But, you know, for me, my the height of my kind of teenage fandom was right at the time that replacements and REM signed to Warners. Like, there was that sense of, like, okay, here's the sellout threshold. Now you can't make good music anymore because you're on a record company. Like, that was the the sense. And I couldn't understand. Like, I, I understood it as a as a purist and as, like, you know, I think you have to have that sense of religion as a young person especially. Um and, you know, the idea of selling out was such a thing for my generation um, that and that became kind of part of the, the, you know, the grunge explosion later was the idea of never selling out, but also selling out at the same time. and But selling out in a way that is acceptable to people. Um, but like when Document came out, R.E.M., it's a great record. You know, Please to Meet Me is a great record. Like whatever, or uh, Don't Tell a Soul, they're both great records. When all those Ramones records were on Sire. Like that's the, Sire put out some uh, undertones records, like Radio Birdman records. Like that's the thing is is you know was that part of the signing to Sire too? Is like wanting to put yourself in that tradition and Rosillo's too, right? And uh, all all that stuff, absolutely. Like I mean, for me, growing probably far more than the other guys, I was just, I spent a lot of time looking at that label spinning around on my di- turntable. Like it was, so, whether it was you know my my hero and you know later collaborator Stephen Duffy. Uh, with his early Tintin records on on Sire or Madonna or Katie Lang or whatever, but but Talking Heads and Ramones, um, those are records that like that I wore out. And to be part of that, I didn't know that he was at pre- that Seymour was signing every band in the world at that point, which he was in the early '90s. They called him Seymour Sign, <laughs> but. Uh, but it didn't matter. I mean, yeah, there were so many group bluebells. There's another one. I mean, there's so many groups that were on Sire that I just totally loved, whether it was just one single or, uh, oh, um, like the Mute Records stuff. So Depeche Mode was on there. And uh, um, uh, what else? What's the Smith? Yeah. Mute, yeah. But yeah, yeah there was, what's, the, what's the guy's? The, uh, uh, what is the uh, Normal. Normal, normal, yeah, yeah, that's it. Sorry, and I think that might even be on business unusual. It's not, but it's same era, it is that same era for sure. Okay, then it must be because they did a sequel compilation too, and I think it might be on that or something too, where there's like, but like, you're like, that's the I think that to me is the most amazing part of getting to be in a band is to kind of like play that sort of fantasy baseball thing where you're like, I'm on this label now. Oh, totally. It was like, it was so exciting for me to be part of that and to have to have a record with that thing. And then by the time Gordon came out, they weren't doing vinyl records. So and I didn't see it except for they did some um, seven and 12 inch singles in the UK. So that way I could put like the Brian Wilson single on the turntable and see it go. They didn't do any vinyl for that stuff in the nineties. I know they were doing low press runs for stuff, but they, I can't believe that never came out. That's wild. No, it was all, it was long boxes for CDs. And cause you know, we sold so much, so much in the world of cassettes um yeah and that was a weird thing too because i'm such a liner note person like i just want to lie on the floor and look at liner notes and so the cassette i remember of gordon just pulled out like i don't know how many how many uh folds there were in it but and it was just you know tiny tiny writing but i wanted it to be full of information and jokes and whatever else well, and it's also, it's it's fitting that we're talking about all this kind of music, because to me, like, the great innovation that helps this stuff DIY happen is the photocopier and the cassette player, you know, and the commercialization of that stuff was just so key to allowing people 
that didn't have access to vinyl presses or labels to, to put out a tape that winds up selling close to 100,000 copies. But the other thing I was really into at the time was uh, I, I was I, when I was a student at York University, I was I wanted to be a poet. That's really what I wanted to do was write poetry. And so I did publish a couple chap books and but that small press book fair kind of thing. I was really, really into that. So I had a big collection of chap books, which is so closely aligned with zine culture. It's, you know, photocopied, hand done books of poetry or prose or whatever. And uh, but that culture of doing it yourself and in that world, too, it, people don't really climb out of that most for the most part. You know, maybe Coach House Press will do a collection of your stuff. Um, but they do it because it's who they are and it's what they do. And that to me was like, that was the same as music as far as I was concerned. Well, it's like, it goes back to that authenticity thing. Like these people are authentically artists and writers living it. Yeah. Not just, uh, you know, yeah, not just, you know, doing it for the, for the money. Yeah, exactly. You're doing it because it's just, that's what you're driven to do. I think that's also sadly why um, a lot of the greatest culture that came out of this city, because we do have such an impenetrable mainstream culture at times, is lost because a lot of it was tapes and a lot of it was fanzines and and just self-published books. And unfortunately, records, there was a, a second life for like mainstream books. There's a second life for through used bookstores. But a lot of this stuff is just kind of lost. Yeah, it's true. And, I, and I've, I've looked through my collection. Like, I feel like I've lost records over moves and stuff, too. And it's like whether they were seven inches or tapes or whatever. there's a time too, like where people purge tapes and CDs, especially vinyl, probably less, but like, you just go, oh, am I ever going to listen to this again? And then I think later, why don't I have that cassette that whatever, whether it's, I bought a bootleg or somebody's band's cassette, or I stood in the audience and taped with my recording Walkman, like the other, all, they were all things I listened to. Where are they? They're in a box somewhere. They better be. So who were like the like first bands you guys would play with? Like what was the scene like when you guys first started, you know, playing downtown? Or was there like a Scarborough separate Scarborough scene? Because obviously bands are from there. Yeah, no, there wasn't at all. It was all and that was part of our shtick too, was the fact that we knew we were driving downtown. I had moved by that point. My parents, when I was fifteen, we moved up to Richmond Hill, Thornhill border. And um but the I addresses was, in the tape. There you go. That's right. That's right there. <laughs> If you're in the first pressing of the tape, that's it. Um, and then there's, oh, there's two versions of the tape too. There's one that's uh, all yellow on the inside, one that's it's, it's white on the back. So if it's white on the back, that's second run. That's like, that's when we got professional on the, think, on the back of the, of the card. I think it's all yellow on the card. So I think I got a first press. I think <laughs> I had a second press growing up and actually I found this one day while thrifting and it was one of my great thrift scores. That's nice. I've seen those go for like 35 bucks on eBay before. Well, and it's also just like as a document of of just like Toronto music, like this to me is is like this, the Valtone seven inch, and and you know, I can't think of too many others that are kind of essential documents Jolly, of DIY. Jolly Tambourine Man, uh, Apple Strudel Man, absolutely. K Records, amazing label, incredible, incredible. Actually, I was talking to my brother today about the history of music that comes out of Inglenook. Like they were an Inglenook band, and and like, you guys have connections, I think, to Inglenook too. Or Bandicoot and Ladies had connections to Inglenook too. Kevin, Kevin went there for a year. I have a one of my children went there for a year. My little brother went there. Our guitar player in, in Fucked Up went there. Um, uh, Bear from uh, Hallucination went there. Uh, Change of Heart went there. Like you really just start unpacking it. It's like wow, this is like one of these places. Like one, of, this is like the fame. <laughs> 
Well, because I mean, also that was like where you would go if everybody considered you to be like a burnout. Oh, he's a he's a burnout, and it's just somebody who like doesn't work the same way, doesn't doesn't buy into the bullshit of school or whatever else, trying to get through it, and they're doing things like playing in bands or you know over and working in a record store or whatever they're doing. That's like. It, to me, always seemed super exotic. Like oh, I want to, I want to hang out with those guys. They know, well, and I think that prepares you so much better for life than this sort of idea that you're going to go to post secondary education and that's going to fulfill your soul and you're going to find your your vocation. Like going out there in the real world, in addition to school, like that's that's really kind of what you need to be doing, right? And well, and the thing is also, it's it gives you a different relationship with angst when you're with kids who are also like you and it's okay, you kind of like, you can discard some of the anger and just do stuff. Like for me, I went for a year, I went to Claude Watson School for the Arts at uh, at Earl Hague in, in North York. And I auditioned for, um, uh, for theater. That's what I, I went. And I went and I hated it. Like I, I went in grade 11 and I wanted to, I wanted to learn, you know, read Stanislavski and do um, Ibsen and, you know, that's like a, whatever. I was a pretentious teenager, but good work, Steve, where, um, you know, the people there were like running down the halls with leg warmers singing, I'm going to live forever and talking about getting headshots done and auditioning for McDonald's commercials. And I thought that was like, I hated them. I just sat in the, I, so I became known as the kid who doesn't talk. I sat in the, in the um, cafeteria and just listened to my Walkman all the time. And I was just mad at everybody. I only lasted a year there, but it was like, that was helpful for me. That let me, that that pushed me to do something different. But if I had gone to somewhere where, like an alternative school, where I just could just do the stuff I wanted to, and I probably would have been with the people I thought I was going to go to theater school with, um, then uh, I don't know. I don't know. what Maybe I would have made different kind of music. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's interesting to think how it like, it shapes you and even like the the rejection from peers or the, even the self-rejection of peers like that ultimately like i look at that as being like why why i'm doing what i'm doing like if, if i right. fit in i wouldn't i wouldn't have anything to write about that's right exactly right and it, that was the thing that i think was was the miss i mean not everybody in my band was an outcast like some guys were like well liked all around and you know, pretty well adjusted and i think sometimes they saw my outsiderness or angst as uh like that that it somehow marked them incorrectly and i, I don't blame them i mean it, you know we used to always get like the british press hated us of course the enemy and stuff and they would always take great glee in giving horrible reviews to our shows or our or our records and they would talk, call us like the fat canadian house martins and uh well you know i like the house martins and uh but uh, Jim Cregan, who's real thin, would always be like, I'm not fat. <laughs> like, that was the thing. But because what it meant was they were talking about me. You know, we weren't all fat, but they were mostly talking about me. And that was like, you know, if you're if you're in a band and it's a democracy, how 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 stressful is that for you for you to to take the the the, the um, criticism that's aimed at one person in the group? and somehow was spread across to everybody. And that was the thing with making that making that first record, Gordon. I was so obsessed with making a record that I thought would be like, I don't know, a pop record for 
indie kids. Like for it, it wasn't it wasn't in my mind wasn't supposed to be a mainstream pop record. And so when it became that, I felt like oh it was misunderstood. I mean now obviously I'm a grown up I don't care, but I was 22 then and I was like it was supposed to be like like our version of a pop record. And you know nobody got that because we were like because it seemed like we already were the popular kids and I wanted it to be pop for unpopular kids. I think it was, you know, like, I think especially Gordon as like a, a younger kid, like I granted, I was younger probably than the people your hope were listening to it. But for me, it was so different than the things on the radio. And, you know, you had songs that were like angst songs, like Brian Wilson, like, you know, like that's something that stays with you for life. You know, my brother and I were still debating today what the late night record shop was, because it's just like, I've been in late night record shops, you know, and that like it speaks to depression and, you know, and like, just like, you know, especially knowing about Brian Wilson now and the mental health issues that he was dealing with, like it really, you know, like it's, it's, it's a heavy record and it's a heavy song and I could totally see the music press in England not getting it, you know, and I, and I think also being another person in a band who is a fat person, it's, it, it's hard, it fucking sucks getting hit with that in the press. Like, I remember I got drawn up in uh, the New Yorker magazine. They just drew me as a fucking blob with eyes. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just, you know, and you don't want it, you know, you're not choosing this, but it's also that Gwen Stefani don't speak moment where you're getting all the attention and the band like, you know, sees it and they're like, oh, we have to carry this thing that you are. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but it's not good. <laughs> it's being thrown at me. That's the thing is like, we have to carry this thing that you are. And it's, the, it's, for I think for my band in the back of I mean I can't speak for them but I think there's a sense of like this thing that the if it the thing that people don't like about us it's you <laughs> you know like yeah and that's how at least that's yeah. how I felt that they were all like we'd be people would really like us if it wasn't for you yeah no and this is gonna sound like a insane name drop but it's not and because but I, I brought up on the show before but like uh, I had lunch with Gore Downey one time and he was like lead singers wear it differently. Like as a lead singer, you're going to have to deal with shit that people in your band are not going to have to deal with. And they're not going to understand it, but that's just kind of like the burden. And I guess the blessing of being a lead singer is that this will be a different experience for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I did have the plus of having, having Ed as a kind of a co-lead singer in a way. And always my partner through that too, that for the most part, we could really rely on each other through that stuff. But that instrument's uh, a, a shield. You know, like that, I really look at that as being like, when you're up there and it's just you with that microphone and you got nothing to protect you. Like, this is something he, Gord brought up too. It's like you with that, like, you know, Roger Daltrey using it as a weapon type thing. And like, you got, you got to figure out how you're going to defend yourself. But like when the show's going bad, it's not like you can just focus on playing. You're looking every single person in the eye. The whole Absolutely. Time. That's right. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally true. And it's, a, it's, it. You have to make choices as to like, how do I look at people? What is the eye contact about? Is it aggressive? Is it, uh, is there some kind of plea in it? Or is it like, is, are you, are you shutting it off? Is it glazed over? I like, what is it? Yeah, no, it definitely is. <laughs> it's, it's the thing that it really came back to me immediately getting back on stage. Like where you're like, oh yeah. Um, it's not just talking on a phone to someone now. It's not sending a text. It's like, you're looking right down the barrel. Well, I think I think audiences are not used to to eye contact either. I I think like as I look at people, I think they don't think I'm looking at them. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, because like I think they re- think the lights are blinding, and also people are so used to looking at screens. Like even right. before pandemic, you know, just like the idea of like looking at a TV and and <laughs> the TV doesn't react to me. Right. So who were some of the bands you guys were playing with early on in Toronto? Like who were the downtown bands? Um, well, I mean, we played with the Skydiggers a lot. I was a big fan of theirs when their first record came out. And like, the thing we would always do is any time a band that I liked came to town, we would give them tapes. Like you'd, you'd, have, you'd make a tape and you'd, you'd get your way up to the front of the stage and you'd like try and hand it to the band. I remember once <laughs> you're going to see Jonathan Richmond and like, here, here's my band's tape. He goes, no, oh, I don't take tapes. And it was like... Oh, okay, whatever, whatever, bud. Um, I've met him like three times, equally weird each time. He's very, very authentic. I love him, though. Were you at that show when he played the horseshoe? This is like, I don't know, you're probably a lot on tour at this point, but this has been like 90, no, 2000 maybe. Um, and it was, he played the horseshoe, and it was a Toronto thing where he left the stage at the end of the set. He's backstage and everyone's like looking at him because the crowd just won't let him leave. Like they're just uh-huh. doing the Toronto clap until you come back because. We're Toronto. We demand an encore no matter how good the show was. And he was he had the biggest freak out meltdown backstage about not doing it and just being so upset that people wouldn't let it die. And then he eventually came back like 15 minutes later and did this like super begrudging encore for the audience. No, I wasn't at that. That's great. The story I remember hearing about him was he used to come in and he'd do like a kid's show in the afternoon at like the Rivoli. He'd do the kid's show in the afternoon then a uh, rock and roll show at night and maybe do like the full weekend. Um, and, uh, was it, so he was like, he, oh yeah. So the one day of the kids show or whatever, Carson shows up and, um, Jonathan is in the dressing room, uh, with his shirt, already there with his shirt off painting the dressing room. Cause he didn't like the, the vulgar graffiti. So he painted the dressing room himself during the day before he did his kids' show. <laughs> that is amazing. That is the best move. Yeah. <laughs> I think a band went viral for doing that recently, but not I don't know if they knew it was Jonathan Richmond's gimmick first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a long that was that would have been probably late eighties or something like that, or early nineties. But but yeah, bands that I would that we would play with. Um, you know, and we were always like another band that we loved that again again kind of punk derived was was the the proclaimers like that was a huge deal for us so we would like you know every time they'd come give them a tape give a tape to every band and and then we actually did hear from their manager and stuff which was kind of cool and eventually like years later got to tour with them that's um, awesome which was really cool but uh yeah it would be like you know a lot of the, a lot of the venues didn't care we got we would play like i had a, a group where me and another guy, Jeff Pounsett, had this group called Scary Movie Breakfast before Bare Naked Ladies. That was, again, it was like rent a four track. Parents are out of town for the weekend, so instead of having a party, we'd get a bucket of KFC and four, uh, four beers or something like that, <laughs> and like, and then just make tapes and laugh all weekend. So we would do like some kind of coffee house type stuff. If there was like, oh, I hear there's a coffee house at this church or whatever, like anything we could do to play, free times cafe, open mic night or something. And then, um, so Ed and I did uh, some of that stuff. Um, there was like that we <laughs> we had my first band. We had finally had a real gig, which was the Cabana Room at the Spadina Hotel. And then Jeff, my partner in the group, couldn't make the gig. Like you know, he had to book it two months in advance. And then he had like a family vacation or something because we were seventeen, and uh, he couldn't make it. So I had to call the guy Jimmy Scopus at at the Cabana Room. 
and tell him we couldn't do the gig. And he's like, you'll never, you'll never play the cabana room ever again. And it was like, perfect because I just, I was in a new band. He would never know it was me. So we did the cabana room. We would play like with Arlene Bishop. She would have nights with other people. So Arlene and Blair Packham would have like Ron Sexsmith on the show or so Kurt Swinghammer was one, a guy we would go see all the time. Um, give him a tape and be like, so Kurt, did you hear the tape yet? And he'd be like, he'd be like mm, no, not yet. Um, <laughs> but the other band that we gave tape to that, re- that that liked it was Corky and the Juice Pigs, the comedy group, who to us, again, like to me, they were like the Ramones. Like their show was rapid fire and it was like, bit 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 song 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 song. it was like so amazingly well constructed and uh machine gun like and eventually they did listen to the tape that we gave them and they invited ed and i on tour to uh open for them which was like mostly comedy nights at like universities and let's we were a band who made jokes they were a comedy group who had music so like we didn't go over all that well but we did learn how to kind of like get an audience to pay attention and make the best of terrible gigs and uh, get paid and all that other kind of stuff and watch them every night and just learn to get better. Um, so yeah, eventually bands like Sky Diggers would, would have us open for them. We'd end up doing a bit of touring with them. And that was like, that was life changing for us. Again, watching that band, watching Andy Mays, you know, I stole so much stuff from Andy. <laughs> you know, watching him every night. What so- about the kids in the hall? Because they would have been going around the same time too, right? Absolutely. I mean, they were they were a hot ticket. So, like, you know, it was hard to get in to see them at the Rivoli and stuff. And then, but occasionally you could get tickets to see them at at their when they had the TV series later. You could get tickets to see that. And then eventually, uh, through other friends and whatever, I ended up becoming good friends with Dave Foley. So I would see him around more often than we kind of be in their orbit um, a lot more. But but that was, you know, that was a little later as we started kind of actually people knowing who we were a little bit. And did he live in Riverdale or the Annex too back then? Uh, I lived um, I lived at, at uh, Dundas and Ossington until 92. And then, yeah, so right around Gordon time or 93, I think is when we moved to Riverdale. I lived there until 2009. Growing up there, walking around was just like, it was so cool. Cause that to me was cool Toronto and like Bruce McCall's living there, you know, and, and you're living there. Like, so walking around, like I'd see, you know, like I, I was like growing up in, in Hollywood, North, North, right. Where yeah. I'm like just around this stuff. And it was, it was such a great time because this was like kind of the birth of all these people that were just doing stuff that people liked and they were achieving success by doing stuff people liked and kind of making their own rules. That's true. It is true. And it, it was, you know, fun being in the schoolyard with, you know, Gordon Downey or whatever. And like, yeah, that kind of, you know, there's just that was the neighborhood. And what I liked about it for my kids was the fact that it wasn't all that, though. Like it was people who worked in the arts as, you know, whatever film editors or it was, um, you know, there was mixed income and there was like a mixed, just a real mix to it that it didn't feel just like, I don't know, gross. <laughs> um, privileged suburb, and uh, that there was a, that there was access for my kids to other places. Because the thing for me as a kid, like growing up in Scarborough, I had to take the Bellamy Nine bus to Warden Station, and then the subway 
to get down and we you know then we go to like young bloor and walk it so we could go to record peddler and that kind of stuff and walk down to queen street and then walk all the way across queen street and then try and get all the way back to scarborough it took forever and i hated it i also had to take the bus like twice a week for an hour and a half in rush hour to get to hebrew school being like the only jewish kid in my school in scarborough and then so to me it was like i'm not putting my kids through this my kids have to have access to the subway like right there yeah that's that's why we chose that area well and i've it's this has come up on the show when bruce was on too like the thing about riverdale that's awesome is like you're saying it is mixed income there's cooperative housing there's subsidized housing in there and so i'm sure it's changed now in a lot of ways because you know those houses are now millions and millions of dollars but it did have this feel like you know there's a cool video store like you know review video on the danforth and there's like cool it was like a real little community the, the amount of stuff that I learned from just from review video, like just, you know, as a young adult going there all the time and just taking out, taking a risk on movies um, yeah. was uh, like huge for me. Oh, yeah. Like when I got into punk and learned about Bruce LeBruce and then being able to walk up to the Danforth and rent Bruce LeBruce movies. Right. It was like, you know, way too young, but they were super cool about renting all that stuff to me. Well, yeah, I, I was kind of peripherally. I, I I would be in, in social gatherings with Bruce, Bruce LeBruce as a as a teenage when I was like a late in my late teens and like then you'd see his movies out and about and be like they're like actually out and about they're actually yeah like no out in the world other people can see this <laughs> well it's it's funny because like you brought up that zine culture there and that's really you know Bruce that's where Bruce is from Fifth Columns from and that's that is the Toronto dominant cool culture throughout the early nineties yeah is the yeah. zine scene. Totally. Um, totally. I was gonna, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was just saying. I think. I think the other thing that made Toronto cool, um, uh, which is alluded to there, but but queer culture and uh, and Caribbean culture are things that before Toronto was as uh, cosmopolitan as it is now, and as kind of you know they always aimed for this world classness, ignoring the things that actually made it world class. We we used to have this. <laughs> the song we would sing backstage before we'd we'd go on stage and at a big Toronto show we'd go world class city full of world class people world class city full of world class people world class people world class city who gives a fuck about a world class city anyways that was like our our hey Toronto how are you yes <laughs> they're so wound up about being world class but that what made them world class was stuff like that particularly for me as a music listener the queer community and the and the and the uh, the Caribbean community. Well, and that's the thing about Toronto too, is like Toronto, you know, hangs its hat. When I say Toronto, I mean like the, the horrible parts of Toronto, but like it hangs its hat on the fact that it is this world-class city and this diverse city and it's music city. And then it just like eats up little Jamaica. It eats up, uh, you know, Spadina Chinatown. Uh, it eats up uh, like um, Church and Wellesley, like the historically queer neighborhood. Like it eats up all these places, like all the practice spaces. They sold a giant practice space, went to a church recently. It's like, we're not going to be this world-class city if we don't allow these places to survive and thrive. Right. Yeah. It's so like the, the you know, Queen street is the greatest example. The fact that like that stretch be, be, between university and Spadina was, had everything like it had, it had people's residences. It had rehearsal spaces and studios. It had cheap places to eat, cheap places to you know, to serve, to serve uh, creative people. Um, 
and that seems so foreign like then it, it became it you know the club monacoization of that area in the late 80s and early 90s and into being almost like nothing now like it just it's like it's like post-apocalyptic there now like yeah. everything moved farther west so it's just like just eat it until it's total it's just a husk i remember all everyone being bummed out when the roots opened right yeah <laughs> and i guess that was the thin end of the wedge you yeah. know the roots led to club monaco which brought the gap which eventually brought shoppers drug mart now i don't even yeah like you're saying there's like it's well, so aren't even there yeah yeah they, they're gone they can't yeah. even survive now like it's 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 amazing how much well i guess that's just capitalism in general it's just like erodes the soil till nothing's left mm. and then none of these cool things that made this place desirable can survive and then even the things that came after it can't survive because there's no one wants to go there right yeah that's exactly right I don't, another thing you guys don't really get the credit, Bannigan ladies don't get the credit for is also being one of the first groups with a streetwear line. <laughs> I guess so. Eh? What, what was, the store on the Danforth. Well, I can't remember what it's called, right? Big kids have to play too, or like to need to play something. Big that kids. was it. That was it. I was racking my brain trying to remember, but like the Bannigan ladies hat was a, uh, an early example and also a dad hat, which has come so back into vogue in recent years too. <laughs> it is amazing. Like people, I, I, I can, I, people will wear them occasionally at a gig, and I'll be like, "Wow, that's a great vintage hat." But it's pretty cool that that was a thing. Like people, people wore those around in significant numbers. Oh, definitely. And it was also at a time where, you know, if you're like, like you know, obviously you're a huge pop band by the time these hats are coming out, but still, it's like. The subversive side of things so if you knew someone had one of those hats on as a kid who was playing dungeons and dragons i was much more likely to find a fellow DD player wearing a barricade ladies hat at that point you know like it was just a, a sign of like yeah i'm on the i'm on the other side of the mainstream mainstream right now that's good that means a lot to me um <laughs> well, and, and you know actually we, we started selling those hats before gordon came out so like they say gordon on the back and that was all like us trying to create kind of in jokes with our audience like Kind of not you know kind of uh nonsensical absurd whatever we wanted it to be like i remember we when we announced the name of the album which was at the ontario place forum we like had had the name laid out on these big like individual letters that we unveiled like as if anybody cared but gosh we were so excited because we were naming we our whole thing was that we were naming our album like you would name your child and that the audience understood enough that this was ridiculous that they got just as excited as we were. Yeah. Like, who who would care if an, what an album is called? Oh, we're going to reveal the name of our album that's coming out in two months. Okay, sure. Go for it, guys. But we thought this was the most exciting thing. And people were in on the joke, which was great for us. Well, it's almost like, yeah, it's like sat, it's like a satire of what the music industry is. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. like Kiss. It's like mocking Kiss in a way. For sure. But it's come back around and that there would be bands that would do whole events around the, <laughs> the name of the record now. Yeah. I just think about oh, God, if we had to do all that social media stuff, then like that would, I would mean so tired. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No, it's, I can't even imagine, uh, <laughs> what it's like now to be a band and be like, okay, we got to get all these things launched before we even get music figured out. Yeah. Cause this is the, this is the step I, I want to ask you about, you mentioned walking down young street back then and young street was pretty heavy certainly around the time of the late eighties around the Eaton center with skinheads and the untouchables and kind of like all this sort of like, well, youth violence, street violence. Do you ever see any of that stuff downtown? Nah, not really. I mean, we would see Bloor street 
you'd see like you know and and like kind of some of the hangouts on Bloor Street, you would see like kind of skinhead, intimidating stuff. But it was no, you didn't really see much of it. It was just kind of like I don't know. It felt like downtown was another world when you come from Scarborough, and, and you just kind of put your head down and eventually learn to like it's you know I don't know. It wasn't. I think part of part of us felt like it can't be real because it's Toronto. Like it's it's got to be it's got to be it's somehow less than the real violence that's out there because there wasn't the gun violence that there that there is now um it was more about intimidation and you know bullying and stuff and that was like not that just felt like going to high school right. yes yeah and i think it's like that's that canadian or toronto inferiority complex too yeah where you're like oh it can't be that big like i remember drake getting becoming the biggest artist and i'm like yeah but it's canadian how big is it gonna get right yeah <laughs> absolutely um this has been incredible and I, I i could talk to you all day and punish you about toronto stuff all day anytime you want to come back here steven please right. know the door is always open thanks damien but before i let you go what was the late night record shop it was sam's that's what i thought my brother's like no 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 it was peddler or something like this i'm like, no, no it's sam's sam's was like midnight you could go to it yeah exactly that was the thing was it was like 11 or midnight you could go so you could like that was and that was awesome and was, the other thing about sam's was and it took me like I I love to go record shopping around the world, record shopping, book shopping, and there was lots of stuff like I would whenever we'd go to the UK, I would load up on vinyl because there was tons of vinyl. They were still making vinyl records there for most, you know, for catalog releases. You know, so you could go and get like I don't know Neil Young Hawks and Doves or something like some and it'd be on vinyl, new shrink wrapped. Um, so I was always into that kind of thing. And it wasn't until later that I realized, no, I think Sam the Record Man might have been the best record comp- record store. I mean, apart from ones that were specific for a genre or a scene, but as far as like overall, better than better than Broadway and Fourth uh, Tower Records or better than Tower in L.A. or any of these other kind of big ones that you would go to, HMV in London. Sam's was amazing when you think about like how how broad they're. Uh, collection of stuff was you could buy there was like yeah wild stuff like even later on when they were kind of going into business and they were clearing out their basement the stuff that was kind of coming out of there it's like wow they carried this at some point like exactly. that's amazing um i lied one more question as a as a, another former food host myself i think your food show is one of the most underrated food shows Thank uh you. i thought it was an amazing show what's the what's the worst restaurant you went to because i also remember the kitchens are super dirty a lot of times when you're going to these places <laughs> it's true a lot of them are gross the worst restaurant I went to, like, see, the probably my worst experience was one that was in some guy's apartment. He was some guy who like got he like was on Master Chef and like got cut in the first round. You can see why he was just kind of an idiot, and everybody there were kind of idiots, and the food was like totally mediocre. And you have to figure out how do you how do you make an episode about this? But I think the episode we made was probably a little mean spirited, making fun of them. Because I, there was almost nothing you could do that was great about the food, but I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, some of them were pretty. Some of them were, some of them were amazing though. There were there were enough that were amazing that were that kind of made it made it fun. Well, this has been fun, and anytime you want to have more fun, Stephen, you know where to come find it. Will do. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on the show. And you're right there. He will be back for a part two whenever he feels up for being punished more 
about this kind of stuff because there's a lot more questions to get to. But that's that's what the, the part twos are for. Uh, coming up next week on the show, or next episode on the show, as we barrel towards episode 400, this is a good one, from the band The O.C.'s, Toronto legend in a weird way, John Dwyer will be on the show, and this is a good one. I'm excited for you to hear it. Uh, that is coming up later on, and probably beginning of next week, let's be honest. Eh, maybe, maybe, we'll see, we'll see, I'm on tour, things are all up in the air right now. But that is it. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves. And stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths or different beliefs or, or just knock all that shit out because this isn't about, you know, political issues. These are about basic human rights. People just yearning to be free and to being recognized and be allowed to take up space. So support organizations that are doing positive things in areas that you believe in. Uh, donate your time, donate money if you can, whatever whatever you can do, you know, help help change the world. Speaking of uh, changing the world, how about changing your own world? Try meditation. I didn't believe in this shit at all. And then I tried it and it's kind of worked for me. So, you know, get one of those apps, try it on, on one of those YouTubes, you know, try, try it. You know, I, I didn't believe in it and it worked for me. So maybe it'll work for you. Speaking of things that might work for you, try and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. I'm living proof of it. I'm in a band and I have a podcast and I've done way more shit than I should be able to do. And that's just because you can do it. If you believe in it, you can do it. So start a band, start a fanzine, do whatever it takes. Just do something. Uh, sign your organ donor card, speaking of doing something, because that changes lives. I've seen it happen. I've seen miracles happen with organ transplants. And you know what? You don't need that shit when they come looking for it. It's just literally dead weight. It's more shit for them to deal with with your dead body. It makes you heavier to carry. You know, this is getting really morbid. Just sign your organ donor cards. And that's it. Stay safe, and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Bye.